Hey Life Canton, Roger here, one of the directors. So glad that you're with us, whether you're a first-time listener or a long-time loyal listener. Thank you for listening today. Uh, and if you have been listening, you know that we're in our series, Out of Hiding, which is all about shame. And you're going to hear a message from me today, actually, about how we move through our shame. But before we get to that, I also want to remind you that God is up to so much in this community, and, and there's so many ways that you can be involved. And one of the ways you can be involved is by filling out a Connect card so that we can get you plugged into this community. Head on over to our Church Center app or our website to do so. But you can also support what God is up to financially uh, through the gift of giving. So I would encourage you to take this opportunity to give to support what God is doing. But either way, we're glad that you're here today. Go ahead and give the message a listen, and I'll catch up with you in just one moment. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. I think my mic's working, yeah? I had a, so I have two great fears about public speaking. Uh, one is a moment when that mic doesn't turn on, and you're like in this weird, awkward moment. That happened last service. So we've got, I did it. I got through it. I got through my fear. The other thing is uh, walking the stage with my pants unzipped. I will do my best to make sure that never happens. Uh, but you know, you got one of those fears over. So my, now that you know a little bit about me, uh, my name is Roger and I'm one of the directors here at Life Can. We are so glad that you're with us, whether it's your first time or your hundredth. One of the things, and if you've been here for a couple of weeks, you know, like I've been saying, we've been in this series about shame called Out of Hiding. One of the really encouraging things that has happened is we've seen these moments of vulnerability and healing from those of you in our community, and it's been really encouraging. And one of the things I want to remind you is that as a church, we don't want you to experience that alone. If you've been feeling heavy emotions during this series, or even feeling heavy movements of God in your heart, we want you to feel supported and encouraged as you go through those moments. So I'd encourage you to fill out a connect card, not just so we can get to go know your name, that's important, but also so that we can get you plugged in and surround you with all of the support and encouragement you need to get through moments like that. So fill that out. Uh, I would also remind you to stop by the welcome desk on our way out and say hi to some wonderful volunteers who would love to meet you uh, and, and begin to build those relationships. So this week, we are in week four of our Out of Hiding series. Last week, we heard a powerful word from uh, our sister, Marnice Roberts, who talked about releasing our baggage. Yeah, we can cheer for that. Uh, releasing our baggage to God. Uh, she, it was a wonderful message, a powerful message, so be sure to give that a listen if you haven't done so yet. But I've been thinking and reflecting on what we've covered so far in this series, and we've talked about the source of shame. We've talked about shame from situations that were done to us. And last week we talked about shame from things that we have done. As I began to reflect on where we should go next and what to talk about, I began to feel a really deep and heavy anxiety. I now believe that it was the Spirit um, trying to show me something or reveal something to me. I began to feel this worry, this concern that there are some of you who today are still stuck in your shame. So I want to start our time by asking that question. Are you still stuck in your shame? Maybe I talked about the source of shame and it did nothing to relieve the pressure of shame in your life. Maybe you heard Pastor Jared say it's not your fault and it wasn't something that you could believe yet. Maybe you heard Miss Marnice last week talk about releasing our grip on the baggage of our shame and you just found yourself still clinging so tightly to those sources. 
Have you been wrestling with feelings of, of there being something that you did or you didn't do that you just can't bring to God? Or feelings of, of defeat and loss in the face of your shame? Have you just felt lost, unable to move forward? Well, I believe that we cannot move forward as a community until we begin together to experience healing and a movement out of shame. So what I want to do today is address those of you who are still stuck and talk about how we get unstuck, how we begin that movement towards healing. But I also want to say for those of you who are in the room who have released your shame, who are in a season of feeling like you, you have a handle on it, you're able to release it to God or, or to see that it's not your fault, I want to remind you that there will be seasons where this will come back. Wrestling with shame is just a part of the human experience. So there will be seasons in the future where you may feel defeated by shame, unable to move forward. So I would ask you also to pay attention so that uh, in those seasons, you may remember something that is said during this message, something you heard from the Word of God to help you get through shame, make it through. And I, I thought a lot about the perfect strategy, the perfect scripture, uh, the perfect thing to talk about with you to move through shame. And after a lot of thought, uh, here's what I want us to do. I want us to be introduced to or reintroduced to a couple of the disciples. Uh, Now, for those of you who've been around church for a while, you know that the disciples were the first 12 individuals that Jesus called and poured into. These are the the men who followed Jesus and learned not to just imitate his faith, but also the way he lived his life. These are also the individuals that Jesus sent out after his death and resurrection to begin the church in the first century. So these are men who knew Jesus well and the first ones to begin to learn what it looks like to follow Christ. And I'm, I'm not going to do like a pop quiz. I'm sure there's lots of uh, songs that maybe some of you learned to memorize all the 12 disciples uh, when you were in school or, or in, uh, in youth group or Sunday school. And I'm not going to do that for two reasons. Uh, one, because I don't want to embarrass you like that. More importantly, because I'd probably fail. So I, I didn't learn a lot of those songs really well. So I'm not going to do that to you. Uh, and I want us to focus on two specific disciples, uh, John and Peter. And I wonder if for some of you, when you think about the names of these disciples, John and Peter especially, if you think about certain scriptures or stories that you heard about them. And we're going to go through some of those today. So let's start with John. Now John is the disciple that I usually characterize as the gentle one. When we think about John, maybe we think about, I do at least, the story about him sitting comfortably in the presence of Jesus during uh, the upper room Passover meal. He even tells us that he leans his head against Jesus' shoulder. This is also the disciple who, in his gospel, the gospel of John, he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. And I've heard a lot of people describe the gospel of John as the gospel of love or the gospel about love. So, so I have this picture of John as this kind of shy and quiet, maybe a little bit demure disciple. And then, then we got Peter. It's kind of the other side of that scale. <laughs> Peter, I often characterize as the reckless one, the loud one. Right? Maybe uh, you think about Peter declaring his faith in Jesus with absolute certainty, or uh, Peter taking that first step onto the water out to Jesus in the middle of a storm. But we also think about all the times that Jesus, uh, Peter gets corrected, that Jesus has to correct Peter, because it happens 
a lot. Almost feels like more than any other disciple. But one of the things I realized about these two disciples, John and Peter, as I studied this week, was I don't think they're actually that different. I actually think they're very similar in a lot of ways. And the other thing that I realized is is despite how similar they are, when they are faced with the shame of the cross, they have two wildly different reactions. And that's what I want to talk uh, today about, about how John and Peter react to shame and maybe what we can learn from each of them. So we're going to start with a couple scriptures that are going to give us a picture of, of what they're like. And I'm going to be kind of all over the Bible today, so feel free to follow along on the screen. But start with Peter. Go to John 18. Then Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering that the Father has given me? It's pretty, pretty typical Peter behavior. <laughs> this is the moment when the Roman soldiers are coming to take Jesus to trial and eventually to the cross. And Peter, seeing this, draws the swords and cuts off somebody's ear. And Jesus corrects him. He talks about the cup of suffering that the Father has given him. Is referring to the necessary sacrifice of his life on the cross. And he's kind of saying to Peter, what are you doing? Am I, am I not supposed to go to the cross? He's, in a way, scolding Peter for, for getting in the way of what Jesus has to do. Again, a very Peter moment. Peter is this, this man, this disciple who displays a recklessness, a temper, a loud mouth. Now let's look at John. How, how, uh, how does the, the peaceful disciple react in moments of stress or anxiety like this. So we're going to look at a story in Luke. And this is, uh, this is a story that we read in Scripture about Jesus' time traveling through uh, Samaria. And the Samaritans and the Jews have a really long and bloody history. There's a lot of animosity. There's hate on both sides. So when Jesus travels through Samaritan, he's not always well received. And we have this story in scripture about him actually encountering a Samaritan village where they don't allow him to pass through. They deny him entry. And the thing is, the scripture doesn't talk about them doing it in a violent or, or even a, a, a spiteful way. It just says they don't let him to pass through. And here's what John, who's with his brother James and Jesus, this is what he says. When James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? <laughs> but Jesus turned to them and rebuked them. And you notice we don't really hear the rebuke, but I think most of us can imagine Jesus pretty upset. <laughs> saying, like, what, what did you just say to me? And it's this moment where we see John also have a temper and a loud mouth. He has the arrogance. And here's the thing. He's not even asking like, Jesus, should you smite them? He asks Jesus, for permission for James and him to smite them. Like, Lord, can we burn them up with fire? This is, uh, doesn't seem to be like the John who wrote the gospel about love. This is a loud John, a reckless John, an angry John, in many ways displaying the same loud mouth and bad temper that Peter has. So we have two men, two disciples, followers of Jesus. They both have similar issues tempers and loud mouths. But what happens when these two disciples, who are so similar, face the shame of the cross? Again, let's start with Peter. 
In Luke, this is what it says. So they arrested him and led him to the high priest's home. And Peter followed at a distance. The guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat around it, and Peter joined them there. A servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him. Finally, she said, the man was, this man was one of Jesus' followers, but Peter denied it. Woman, he said, I don't even know him. After a while, someone else looked at him and said, you must be one of them. No man, I am not, Peter retorted. About an hour later, someone else insisted, this must be one of them because he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. At that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Suddenly, the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times that you even know me. Look at this last verse. And Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. In this moment, we see Peter deny Jesus, not once or twice, but three times. The first time someone recognizes him as a disciple of Jesus who had followed Jesus around a public teacher for three years. They recognized his face. They had seen him with Jesus before. And Peter still says, I don't even know him. And at one point, someone even accuses Peter of being a Galilean like Jesus, of being from the same hometown as Jesus. And Peter still says, I don't know him. The other thing that the scripture teaches us is that this was a moment that Jesus predicted for Peter. He knew this was going to happen. He knew this was coming and still he denies Jesus three times. But here's this thing, this last verse. If Peter knew that it was coming, this had been predicted to Peter, then why is he going out in the courtyard and not just weeping, but weeping bitterly? What emotion is he wrestling with. I think in many ways Peter is facing shame. And we actually see Peter facing all the kinds of shame that we have talked about. On one hand, he is facing public shame. Shame about the situation or shame about expectations put on him. Here's the thing, in that culture, if you were a student who followed a teacher, a rabbi, their reputation had an impact on your own reputation in the public sphere. Jesus, at the moment, is being nailed to a cross, experiencing a criminal's death. He's being beaten and mocked and made fun of and, and experiencing shame in this shame and honor culture. And the reality is that that shame had an impact on Peter. In many ways, he was susceptible or vulnerable to the public ridicule that Jesus was receiving. So not only is he denying Jesus for his own safety so that they don't grab him and also crucify him, but he's also trying to avoid the shame of what his teacher is experiencing and that shame being put on him. So we talked about a couple of weeks ago, shame of a, something that is not done to you, of a situation or expectations. But Peter is also experiencing shame from something that he did do. Something we learn about Peter all throughout the Gospels is that he's really proud of being a disciple. He has a lot of pride in his role as a follower of Jesus. We actually have these moments where he brags in front of other disciples about how good a disciple he is. We see him brag about his faith. We see him brag about his ability to serve Jesus. And here's the other thing. Right before Jesus tells Peter, you will deny me, 
Peter is actually busy bragging about how he'll never leave Jesus, even when all of these other disciples do. And now in the moment where Peter has an opportunity to own up to not just pride, but this identity of being the best disciple that he keeps bragging about, he fails. Miserably. He denies Jesus. And I wonder if he's now wrestling with the reality that what he said about himself is no longer true. If he's now deeply rooted in the shame of not being who he said he was. So that's where Peter's at. Where's John during all this? As Jesus is being nailed to a cross and as uh, Peter is, is denying Jesus, where is John? And when we read the gospel accounts, we find John literally at the feet of Jesus. Despite his teacher's reputation, despite the shame of, of Jesus being ridiculed and mocked by the public, despite the, the possibility of being shamed by association with him, we find John at the foot of Jesus, literally as he is dying on the cross. And not only there, but they're comforting Jesus' mother who is watching her son being crucified. So here's the question. What does John understand that Peter doesn't? These two men have the same spiritual problems. They have pride and anger in a loud mouth. But when it comes time to face the shame of the cross, one of them denies Jesus and the other one stays at the feet of Jesus. One of them gets stuck in his shame. One of them is somehow able to avoid it, to get out of it. So what is the difference between these two men? You know what the last story in the Gospel of John is? It's not a moment between John and Jesus like we might expect. It's actually a moment between Peter and Jesus. It's this intimate exchange between Peter and Jesus. And I think John closes with this story because there's something about his knowledge or his experience or his understanding that he needs us to know. He needs his readers to understand before they finish reading his gospel. So today we're going to read that last interaction between Peter and Jesus in the gospel of John. We're going to be in John 21 for the rest of our time together. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know that I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. There are moments in the Gospels where we see Jesus, after his resurrection, reappear to his disciples. In the Gospel of John, this is actually the third time that Jesus has appeared to the disciples. And and what I didn't read was uh, Jesus approaching all of the disciples and having a moment with them. And I wish I had time to go into everything that happens in that exchange. 
Um, I don't, but one of the things that I did notice is that the way that Jesus approaches his disciples in many ways mimics the posture of God with Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3. So I would encourage you to study those two scriptures this week and see how those cycles I talked about, the shame cycle and the reclaim cycle, play out in the posture of God in both stories. But here's what I need you to know about that story right now. Jesus appears to them. He cooks a meal for them, and then he invites them to sit with him and eat that meal together. It's this warm, intimate, special moment between Jesus and his disciples. And I bet for a lot of the disciples, that was probably a healing moment. Remember, John was the only one who stayed at the feet of Jesus on the cross. The rest of him, them all abandoned him. So, so I wonder if this was a moment for many of them of, of intimacy, of, of acceptance, of, of letting go of the, of the shame. And having this moment with Jesus. Regardless of what it was, it didn't seem to be enough for Peter. Because right after that, we get this moment one-on-one between Peter and Jesus. It seems like there's something that Peter hasn't experienced yet. Again, something John wants to point out to us. And and I love this uh, passage of Scripture. It's actually one of my two favorites. I read it pretty often, and one of the reasons I love it is every time I read it, I have to re-understand something about it. I have to learn something new. And in the past, the way that I've kind of categorized this moment between Jesus and Peter was it was kind of a correcting moment, a moment where Jesus pulls aside Peter to have a word with him. It's like that moment in school when your teacher says, come here, and you know, "Uh uh-oh. But I don't think that's actually a good categorization of what's happening here. What I I think a better way to understand this maybe is that it's a relational moment between Jesus and Peter. It's a moment where Jesus pursues Peter. A moment where I think Jesus sees Peter stuck in his shame and says, I am not going to leave you there. I'm going to come after you. We're going to have a face-to-face moment. So one of the things I want to say to those of you today who are still stuck in your shame is that Jesus is pursuing you. He's not satisfied with leaving you in your stuckness. He's coming after you. He wants you to have an intimate moment with him. So in this message and in the worship that is about to follow, I want you to be prepared for that moment when Jesus comes to you and meets you face to face. That moment where he pursues you. So what does Jesus do in this moment? Well, he asks Peter three times, do you love me? And and notice the first time he asks, he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? So what are these? Um, It's probably not the fish. It's probably probably not saying, do you love me more than fish? It's probably not the bonfire. What he's doing is he's confronting Peter's bad habit. Because again, Peter had a habit of bragging about how much better he was than all of these rest of the disciples. And now Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me more than these disciples? In a way, this is kind of Jesus... uh, forcing Peter to confront his shame, to come face to face with it. But I don't think Jesus is doing it to shame him, to help him stay stuck in his shame, but actually to to pursue him and to pull him out of it. He's trying to lead Peter in a new direction, even as he notices all of the shame that Peter is stuck in. Right? Notice, notice, uh, Peter's response that third time, it says that uh, Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question. I think Peter is stuck in those emotions of shame. He, he's almost 
I think, remembering what he did as he's trying to profess something with his mouth. He's trying to say, Jesus, you know I love you, but also remembering what he did. The shame of his failure. And Jesus sees that and is coming after that, after that emotion, that shame. Uh, I'm going to be really honest about this sermon. This was a really hard one to write. I don't actually remember the last time that I had this much frustration and anxiety over a sermon. And I actually had a whole other sermon that I wrote. And then Tuesday night, the day before we do rehearsals and, and feedback with staff, I scrapped it. I threw out the whole thing. I rewrote it from the ground up. And part of the reason why I did that is because I had fallen into the trap of Peter. I'd become so focused on my performance I was focused on presenting a a correct view of of the details and the theology and the arguments to help you get out of your shame. I remember having this thought of, if, if I don't do this right, they will be stuck. If I don't do this right, they will continue to experience shame. If I don't do this right, they'll miss the moment. And then I realized that I had missed the point. Here's the truth, church. There is nothing we can do to free ourselves from shame. There's no action step. There's no strategy. There's no method. And forgive me for saying this, but there's no perfect scripture. There was nothing that I could do, I can do, to get you out of your shame even now. Here's something that stood out to me about this this story. Something I hadn't noticed before. Do you know what it's missing? And when we talk about people uh, moving forward through something they've done, the word that we often like to use in church is repentance. That's not here. There is not a moment in this story where Peter says, I am sorry, or where Jesus asks him to confess what he has done. And when you read commentaries, they'll say, well, that's because that already happened. And this, this isn't about Peter. This is about Peter's ministry. But I think that's missing the point. I think what John understands in this moment is that what Peter needed was to encounter Jesus. Notice the question that, that Jesus under, asks Peter. What he, he does ask is, do you love me? Jesus is turning Peter away from his stuckness, away from his shame, away from this obsession over how good a disciple he is. And he's saying, look at me. Do you love me? Are you rooted in your love for me? Because that is what matters. You know what Jesus doesn't ask? He doesn't ask, will you obey me? Will you do better next time? Will you have more faith? Will you get back up on the horse and do this again? Will you improve? He says, do you love me? Is that where your heart is? Is that where your identity is? And he tells them to participate in this community. He tells them to tend to my sheep. Feed my lambs. Notice the emphasis on Jesus. Uh, He's talking about the church, this community that he established. This community that ultimately Jesus is the one who is responsible for. And he's telling Peter, go and lead that community, not as a punishment. Because that is where Peter will be best positioned to encounter Jesus. The, The path through shame isn't a performance. It's an encounter. It's an encounter with one person, with Jesus. And John understands this, and Peter right now is in this moment where he is he's understanding that. He is learning that. There's a lot of discussion about why John calls himself the, the one whom Jesus loved. 
But I wonder if it's less of a title and more of an identity. I wonder if if John understands that the only thing that matters about him and what he has done is Jesus and his love. That actually what he has done doesn't matter at all. And that the only title worth bearing is beloved of Jesus. I rewrote the sermon uh, because I realized that I was trying to get you to encounter good theology and good arguments and good details and good exegetical insight, and I stopped and I rewrote it because I, I realized you didn't need to encounter any of those things to get out of your shame. You needed to meet two men and encounter one. You needed to meet a man who was stuck in his shame, a man who understood what it meant to sit at the feet of Jesus even as his, his teacher was being crucified and killed. And you needed to encounter Jesus. Because that is the only path through shame. There is nothing you can do but sit at his feet. And that does not require something from you. Jesus isn't done. He's not done redeeming Peter. He has one more thing to say say to him. Look at this. I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, follow me. The first thing that Jesus ever told Peter is one of the last things that John records Jesus telling Peter, follow me. Follow me out of this shame. Follow me out of the place where you're at. Follow me and experience my love. Encounter my love. When I first read these verses, it always seemed like a punishment. Right? Jesus is, is using this metaphor of, of being older and having to be more dependent on where other people take you to, to, to tell Peter literally that the way he will die is through crucifixion that he will die in the same manner that Jesus died. And when I first read it, I was like, that, that, that seems like a punishment. That seems like Jesus is saying, this is the cost of your disobedience. This is the cost of your actions. And I realize that if we're not careful, we can read this like a, Jesus is some kind of disciplinarian, but this is not a punishment. This is a vision. Think about where Jesus, where Peter is stuck, right? He's, he's stuck in this this failure of his. He's stuck in this, this view of himself he has as, as an unworthy disciple. But Jesus gives him a vision, a vision that tells him that his failure is not his future, that he won't remain stuck in that shame, that he will grow in his faith, in his trust, in his ability to spread the gospel, his ability to lead others to Jesus, so much so that there will be a day when Peter not only doesn't deny Jesus, but that he's willing, he trusts God enough to die on the cross for Jesus. That's not a punishment, that's a redemption. This is the last thing that Jesus gives Peter, a a vision of the future. He shows him what he has for him. This is something I think we forget really easily. Jesus wants more for us, not more from us. He's telling Peter, you are not unredeemable, you are not unusable, you are not broken, I have more for you, and one day you will not only be a great disciple, but you will be so deeply in love with me that you will go to the cross on my behalf. 
And I wonder if some of us are stuck because we keep waiting and trying to do something and we have this, this, this idea that God needs to see something for, from us, see us do something, and we're paralyzed by that. And we're so paralyzed that we, we misunderstand, we, we don't see that God just has something for you. We don't see that there's another side to shame and that on the other side of shame is love and peace and joy. On the other side of shame is this abundant life that Jesus promised all who follow him, all who experience his love. And the only path, the only journey, the only thing that has to be done is to sit at the feet of Jesus and receive it. To receive all that God has for you. So today, I don't have a three-step action point plan for you. I don't have a method. I don't have a strategy. What I have is a suggestion. Something I want you to try this week. I want you to come face to face with Jesus. I want you to have an encounter with him where you, where you experience his love and his care for you and you experience what he has for you in the future. So this is what I'm going to challenge you to do, what I would suggest for you to do. I want you to find a safe and quiet place this week. If it's outside and there's a bonfire and there's fish cooking, all the better, right? <laughs> More biblical. But what I, all I really want you to do is to, to find a quiet space, to leave behind your distractions, to have a moment where you, you face Jesus in prayer. And sometimes we can become so focused on our performance in prayer, on, on saying the right things and asking the right things and making sure that we have the right heart so we can receive those things and, and crying out to God. And I understand all that, but, but I want this to be a prayer of listening, a prayer of encountering. So all I'm going to ask that you do in your prayer is just ask God, what do you have for me? That's it. And I can bet that for many of you, God is going to show up. Jesus is going to show up and he's going to show you what he has for you. Maybe not a full, clear picture, but he's, he's going to hint at what he has in store for you on the other side of your shame. So that's what I want you to do this week. Have a still, quiet moment with Jesus where you just ask him, what, what do you have for me? What is next? But I also don't believe that encountering Jesus once a week for a couple minutes is, is really going to help us move through our shame. We need to encounter Jesus daily. So I want us to have a moment right now in this moment where we encounter Jesus. I had, uh, when I first wrote this message, even before I, I readjusted and rewrote it, I texted Meredith and I said, there, there's a song I want us to sing. And I didn't give her a great explanation as to why. I just knew there's something about this song that we needed to hear. Here's what I think it is. Uh, this is a song that is not like a lot of the songs we sing. Often when we sing songs in our, in our worship, they're songs where we are singing to God. We have something to say to, to God, something to affirm him for, something to praise him for. But this is a song from the perspective of God. This is a song about what God has for us, what God has to say for us. So I'm going to ask that we experience this song as it leads us to encounter Jesus. What I want you to do is to sit. I don't want you to sing. I don't want you to give something to God. I want you to receive something from him. So the next few moments, I'm just going to ask that we sit and we listen and we hear what God has in store for us and that that begins our path, our journey towards healing because that's what God has for you. That's what he wants for you. So let me pray 
as we enter into this moment. God, thank you. Thank you that you are a father. The best kind of father, one we can ever imagine, one who pursues us, who doesn't leave us stuck in our shame or stuck in our shower or our sorrow or stuck in our pain, but who comes after us, who embraces us, who picks us up. Who, who lavishes his love upon us in, in a way, in moments that we cannot experience anywhere else. So God, in this moment, as those of us in the room who are, are stuck in our shame come to you, I would ask that you grant us a vision, a moment, clarity about what you have for us on the other side of our shame. That you would allow us to have the ears to hear. Well, you have to speak to us what you have to show us. God, let this be a moment where we encounter you in a way that eradicates our shame. A way that not just takes it from us, but rips it from us. Where your love becomes all that we can see and all that we can experience that drives out all fear and all shame. Everything, God. Let this be a moment where we rest at your feet and experience your love. Be with us in this moment, God. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed that message. As you might have heard in in the message, it was a harder one for me to write, but I believe that God had something to say and that the Holy Spirit was prompting me to bring that word to you. So I would encourage you to take that action step of finding a moment to encounter Jesus this week. Also, I talked about a song in the service and we did include it because it wasn't recording great, but that song is don't give up on me by brandon lake so i would also encourage you to listen to that song this week and let it be spoken over you uh, and hear what god has to say and what he has for you on the other side of shame so give that a listen but we'll remind you that we want to support whatever you have going on support you in those those moments of whatever is going on in your life so reach out fill out a connect card if you need prayer or any other kind of support that's the best way to communicate with us But I hope that you have a blessed week. I hope that God moves you through the shame or just shows up and encounters you in a new, fresh way this week. Have a blessed week. We'll talk to you soon.